Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. From Vice Australia, this is Extremes with me, Julian Morgans. This is a show that explores the far ends of human experience. And today, we're going to hear from a guy named Ben McMahon. He was involved in a really serious car accident and woke up speaking Chinese. The nurse was quite taken back and then went on to tell my parents that, you know, your son's woken up from the coma. But he's speaking Chinese. And so, of course, parents were over the moon. You know, their son's alive. There's something going on up in his head. But <laughs> they were kind of a little bit worried that in order to speak with their son, they're going to have to learn Chinese as well. Ben learned Chinese in high school, but like a lot of people who learn languages in high school, he didn't really learn the language, he just kind of got a grasp of the basics. But a few years later, Ben was involved in a car accident, and it put him in a coma for a week. And when he woke up, he was speaking fluent Chinese. Today, we're going to talk to Ben about destiny. And that's because Ben says that he was in a car accident, not just out of random chance. He thinks he was in that car accident so he could get fluent in Chinese, move to Shanghai, and then even appear on this dating show that's really famous in China called If You Are The One. Ben's life now completely revolves around China, and he thinks that was destiny. He thinks it was because of this car accident. The start of my Chinese journey began in high school where we had to learn two languages. I started French already, so I thought, you know, that's one. And then originally what I was going to do was German. And then when I went to school to hand in my form of which two languages I wanted to do, my dad from the car literally yelled out, you know, what two languages are you doing? And I said, French. And he's like, okay. And then German. And he went, German? Yeah. What about... What about you try that, that Chinese? I feel like China's going to be a really big country. I thought, funny language, they draw pictures, this is just going to be too difficult. So I had a little bit of a fight, and in the end I kind of just did it against my own will, but then started and really, really enjoyed the kind of artistic side of it, like the characters, the, the character for family in Chinese has a roof and a pig, and so that kind of represented a stock downstairs and a roof over your head. And I thought that was really, really cool. My Chinese teacher said, what about, you know, go over to China, maybe do a bit of volunteer work, uh, backpack around and study some Chinese over there. So I ended up doing that and really enjoyed it. You know, you could talk about the weather, you could introduce myself, I had a really nice time. I saw a lot of China and then came back to Australia to start university. Two weeks after coming back, I was involved in a really, really serious car accident. I don't remember anything from the accident because I was completely knocked out. 
What I do remember is that morning waking up and having breakfast, and then from then onwards I don't remember a thing. But what I was told uh, following the accident is that uh, a big semi-trailer truck ran through a red light and smashed into the side that I was passenger in, left me pretty mangled, fractured all my sternum, rib bones, had a major concussion, and was put in a coma for about a week. My initial memories from waking up from the coma, and it's still a very big blur, because there's two weeks where I was going in and out of consciousness, was that there was a Chinese nurse there. And as I regained consciousness, the first words that came out of my mouth uh, was fluent Chinese. And the nurse was quite taken back. And then I think spoke to me probably for a little bit, and then went on to tell my parents. For the next uh, week or two, I would only speak Chinese. Wouldn't matter whether I was speaking with the nurse, doctors, people that came into the room, or my parents and um, brother, who by no means speak Chinese. It was just the most natural thing that came out of my mouth. There was one thing that I do remember. They were worried that my lung was going to fill with some sort of liquid or something. So they had to knock on my sternum every 15 minutes or every half an hour just to double check that I was still breathing. And it hurt so much. Like, and so whether they could speak Chinese or not, I'd tell them, which is like, you know, it really, really hurts here. I could have died. Like I was that close to dying or being paraplegic. I could have had certain mental functions that were damaged in the process. But when I made the realisation I was speaking Chinese and that they weren't understanding. I wrote on a piece of paper in Chinese, I love my mum, I love my dad, I will get better. I think because I could see at that stage, parents don't know if they're going to be able to speak with their kid again. And I wanted to make sure that they knew that I was okay, knew that stuff was going on up there. There's no real conscious realisation that, hey, I'm speaking a language that they're not understanding, or hey, I'm speaking Chinese, or I'm speaking English. It was only really after two weeks that then I started realising something's not right here. I started mumbling English and Chinese together and that gave them the biggest fright because then no one could understand what I was talking about. It was just mumbles here and there of Chinese and English. Before the accident, I'd already had an exposure to Chinese. I could have basic conversations with people, but by no means was it fluent. Whereas post-accident, my internal monologue, the voice that kind of speaks to you in your head, went to Chinese. And so from that moment onwards, it it just became so much more natural and so much more fluent. There was no first thinking English, then translating to Chinese and speaking. It was just straight Chinese. So at that stage, there was annoyance. There was confusion. There was a little bit of despair, like no one's really completely understanding what I'm needing. And then only after that, then I was up to differentiate which language I'm speaking to who. This is the language that I speak to parents and brother. This is the language that I speak to people that speak Chinese. Post waking up, when I started to be able to differentiate English and Chinese, I still, like, I was in a great state. I had tubes all over my head, making sure that my brain wasn't going to blow up or whatever. I had tubes here, there and everywhere. But I had this inner feeling that I knew that I was going to be okay. Whether it be one week, one month, six months, I'm going to get out of here. From coma to differentiating languages and out of recovery and rehab, it was, you know, a month. And although I still needed to sleep a lot and to rest, I was just so focused. 
I, I just knew that whether it was fate or whether whatever it was that China's kind of where I'm going so close to dying so close to be left in a state of which I couldn't walk I couldn't think I couldn't uh, function like I used to and there was this great appreciation that one I'm still here two I have the freedom to do what I want and three that there's this language and that there's this this thing that's just pulling me to China when Ben left hospital he enrolled in a Chinese language course and now thanks to the coma he was really fluent and he was invited to participate in a language competition that eventually took him to Shanghai Then, when he came back to Melbourne, he started a tour company for Chinese tourists and briefly hosted a Chinese game show. So basically, for Ben, his life had now transitioned in such a way that China was kind of at the center of everything he was doing. Hey, I'm just going to pause here because if you're enjoying this podcast, then there's another one from Vice Australia you need to check out. This is called Anxiety Hour, and it's hosted by my good friend and colleague, Wendy Seifert. The show consists of some really honest and moving conversations about mental health with all sorts of public figures. And Wendy unpacks what their own demons have meant for them in their own lives and the kind of ways that they've learned to mitigate some of their more anxious moments. It's a great show, and here's a listen to it. If someone dislikes your art and they can critique that work, you can kind of distance yourself from it because it's subjective. But when you are telling a personal story and someone wants to critique that, it it's so much harder. So, Ben, we'll get to your new life in a minute, But I'm really curious, were there any theories from neurologists who were seeing you or maybe psychologists about how a coma had affected your language skills? Well, a lot of theories from psychologists and people thinking about what happened. One of the theories that has been proposed was that English speakers, most of the language memory and that kind of activity that goes on is on the left side of the brain. And most of the thinking is on that one side. Chinese speakers, though, use both hemispheres of the brain more so than, say, uh, your average English speaker for the language ability, and I received most of the impact on the left side of my brain. So my left side of the brain had severe impact, needed to rest and recover itself, and so potentially what happened was the brain naturally went, okay, left side needs to go into more rest and hibernation, and then the language activity can shift over to the right side, and part of the Chinese was kind of stored there, and then... For that reason, maybe the Chinese became more natural. People were really, you know, in awe and surprised that now, you know, for a time it was only speaking Chinese and now it's Chinese has improved. But more than anything, people were just really happy that I was alive, I think. Um, the Chinese is just the cherry on top. I felt like life's, life is so short. Like, I, I, I could have not nearly died. I, I've got to contribute something to the world. I've got to uh, you know, leave my mark or I've got to do something special. And it just felt, I think, pre-accident. There was an appreciation that really, you know, every day it was just so blessed to be alive and to be able to walk and to be able to speak and to be able to spend time with family and friends and you know, pursue dreams. And then post-accident, that just became so clear and just really, really appreciative that you know, I'm still here. So after you attended this, uh, this kind of language Olympics, 
um, and after you'd been running your own tour business, what happened next? Once I came back to Australia, I hosted a Chinese TV show, and that was kind of where my passion... Here in Melbourne? In Melbourne, yeah. How did you rig that up? They were shooting this Chinese television show, and they wanted to have a... A Caucasian Chinese-speaking host. I think they asked around. They just couldn't find anyone. So by process of elimination, they just came to me because I'd just come back from the Chinese competition. And then I hosted that, and that's kind of where this this interest in entertainment too came from. That gives the prequel of the involvement with... I hosted a couple of Chinese things here. I'd do a wedding here and there. I'd do uh, you know, an event here and there hosting in Chinese, both in Melbourne and also in China when I was living over there. So I came back... And then the opportunity came up. They were shooting this show called "If You Are the One." Hello, Australia. I'm Okay, tell me about this show. I've watched it like once, half of half of one episode, maybe. So it was literally my favorite show when I lived in China. It was just like it's a date show. It's the biggest date show in the world. And like 80 million people will tune into an episode of this thing. And what happens is they get 24 girls, they stand on stage, and then one male contestant comes out one by one. So you're on stage for about, you know, an hour. And the girls grill you with questions. They ask you, you know, what's your family background? Do you have a car? Do you have a house? You know, what do you do? What are your hobbies? And really, really kind of drill you to see, you know, are you what they're looking for? And they're girls from all different backgrounds. Certain girls want certain type of guys. Do they write the questions? Uh, no. Uh, from what I understand is that, no. Like, traditionally the show, people have just been, they've been single and they really want to get a, um, a partner. And so they go on the show, audition for the show. Uh, like, I was running my own little business. Uh, I was really passionate. I was like, I was looking for, a, you know. You really, had some potential. Yeah, I think, like, anyone that's game to go on the show, they've got an element of courage, and I think that's a really attractive quality in a partner. And mm. so I thought, I'm single, uh, I love the show, I'm not sure if this opportunity will ever come up again. And so, yeah, maybe if I find true love on stage, like, what a great story. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. When they uh, presented your backstory, did they cover the bit about how you'd kind of learned a lot of Chinese via a coma? No, I didn't even tell them that. Um, really? They didn't even uh, raise that in the show. I don't I, think the directors I even knew. I would have thought that would have been a bit yeah, of a Yeah, they hook. obviously didn't do their background research because <laughs> there's enough online <laughs> about it. lousy background but, research. Uh, no, in fact, what they wanted to do, they knew I ran a tourism company, but they were like, they came over and the directors were like, look, we've already filmed someone in Hosier Lane for their background story. Are they cowboys in Australia? <laughs> and I was like... <laughs> I don't, we don't really have any cowboys. <laughs> we cows well, we did have a gold rush, though, um, in Ballarat. We had a gold rush. And they're like, yeah, let's go out to Ballarat, to the gold fields there, and film like a backstory, like you, 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 you're digging for gold. <laughs> okay. Okay. So we went over there and we did this 
very theatrical backstory of me looking for my love, you know, mining for gold, and um, that was slightly vaguely related to the tourism company. But, you know, it's reality TV, it's a date show, so I thought, you know, whatever. So you went on the show? Yeah, went on the show, and I wanted to be really prepared because I'd seen episodes where, like, the girls can be really savage and just really dig into you and really, you know, criticise this, criticise that. One of the most famous sayings on the show was one of the girls, she said, I'd rather be crying in the back of a BMW than smiling on the back of a bike. Right. I had no idea what was going to come up. So I had to be like strategic and prepare stuff just to make sure that I really show, you know, the best Ben possible. And so I brought Tim Tams and I taught him how to do a Tim Tam slam. I gave Tim Tams to all the girls. What's a Tim Tam slam? You get a Tim Tam, which is an Australian chocolate biscuit. Yeah. Uh, like these delicious biscuits. And then you bite the top and the bottom of it off. Okay. And then because it's got like this uh, soft kind of inner filling, you can use it as a straw. Okay. And gotcha. then you can, sometimes people use hot chocolate, some people use you know, milk. I use tea because I wanted to have like a Chinese Australian because ultimately okay. that's his, I'm Australian, but you know, I'm kind of Chinese as well. So I taught him how to do a Tim Tam Slam with milk, uh, with uh, tea. How was that received? They loved it. Yeah. Oh, they loved it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That was the, you know, the first big tick. And then the next thing I did, I kind of, you know, there was various questions about what do you do? What's your background? Do you reckon there's cultural differences between China and Australia? What did you, because that, that's kind of uh, dangerous territory in, in a lot of ways. Talking yeah. about cultural differences, yeah. especially in front of a live audience yeah, of 80 that, million. Absolutely. Like, how did I was you, how did literally, you address that? I, I, it wasn't like it was really frightening going on this show you know like you go on X Factor you got how many people like a million people watching you go on if you are the one you got 80 million people watching you you don't want to say something wrong right um, so, so what did you say about our different cultures oh, I was very um, almost diplomatic about my response I said look there's going to be differences um, there's d- definitely cultural difference between Australia and China and I know if I'm in a relationship with someone that's Chinese like there's going to be cultural differences but like I hope that we can kind of know confront these issues and like the love for each other will transcend any sort of issue in fact that the the differences culturally will bring us closer together and i think that was kind of received pretty well right okay okay so you didn't and talk you, about but you cut the craziest thing about the show <laughs> you come down if you watch the show at the start or the music was can you feel it and you come down this little lift and that was the most petrifying thing at the start because there's you go up in this lift just before you come down and then you're going to hear, like, and the next male contestant is, you know, Meng Jianming. And then, you know, I kind of come down this lift. You walk out of the lift. You try and be really suave. And, you know, hi, hi, my name's Ben. I'm from Australia. I'm, you know, 20. They made me say I was 26 or 25 in the show. Sure. And then I played, like, a like a romantic song in on guitar and sung as well. Because you, you got song? a show. Like, it was, it was called in Chinese. The name of the song is Let's Not Be Friends. But, like, in a romantic way, let's be more than friends. But in Chinese, it's called Let's Not Be Friends. Do you think you could give us a, a bar or two? Which is like, let's not be friends. That friends can't hold hands. Okay, um, so it's like the the Chinese ballad of "Don't friends own me." Yeah, it's like let's be more than friends. So how did how did the show go? So I went out and one of the girls, like kind of the equivalent of super liked. I thought she was really cool. Like, you know, international lawyer, um, born in China but immigrated to Australia when she was really young. And then, so, I picked her in the end, and she, you know, picked me, I guess. And then, after the show, you walk off the show, and we chatted for a little while, and I was like, yeah, she seems really cool. Most people that go on the show, unfortunately, don't end up with each other long term, as with many date shows, but with this one, at least, a lot of people don't 
end up, you know, with each other in the end. One couple, though, on the episode that I did go on, they've recently gotten married. So there's hope for going on the mm. date show. Yeah. And then we kind of kept in touch with each other for, uh, you know, about a month or so. And then um, she came down to Melbourne, you know, had one day, and we just realised pretty quickly we're really not suitable for each other. And did you have cameras following you the whole yeah, time? Yeah, so for the side of it, we did. We had cameras following us for the start of the date. And I thought it was really romantic, you know, went out for brekkie, went out for lunch, went out for dinner, went to a movie. Um, did you ever really forget the cameras, or are they just kind of there? Oh, the, the cameras time? were there until... Like two PM or so. Right. Okay. Like so, after lunch, and then they so dinner was good. <laughs> yeah. Was like, it was, yeah. Well, I mean, like when you're on the show, there's always cameras everywhere. You kind of get used to it. Mm. But yeah, I think like at the end of the day, like it's just kind of really apparent that we, we were going in very two different directions, mm. and um, and so just called it quits kind of there. How was that handled by the uh, the Chinese media when you guys? Oh, when busted up? Uh, Chinese media not. Too, there was not too much in China, but the Australian media went berserk about, oh, you know, they broke up, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so there was like, yeah, it was a little while that I was a little bit scared because, you know, there was rumors and stuff saying, oh, you only went on the show for fame and all that stuff, which is so far from the truth, it's not even funny. Yeah, it's never nice having bad things said about you in the media, whatever it is, but then, like, it all passes. Were people really encouraging that you were this this white guy who was really fluent in Chinese? Yeah, I think I think it's a bit of a novelty and a bit of a surprise for them. I took one subject at Melbourne University where everyone was Chinese. My teacher was Chinese, so you know, halfway through they realised, well, everyone's first language is Chinese. Let's just do the class in Chinese. And well, of course, I don't look Chinese, so there's always a bit of a novelty and a difference there. I'm really curious about vocabulary because. Vocabulary is a kind of thing where, like, if you don't know a word, mm. you don't know a word. You can't just pluck it out of a vacuum. Mm. Do you do you remember how you were gaining words that you previously didn't know? It wasn't like I could suddenly speak words that I'd never had exposure to. I don't really understand like uh, how that that would necessarily be possible. I think everything that I was able to speak, I'd had exposure to. Be it I heard it on the street, or be it you know I'd heard it in a sentence, or I'd read it somewhere before. But it was the fluency and the way that it just came out so much more natural than it was before because my monologue had changed. That was the the most significant fact was that I wasn't thinking in English. That was not the natural thing to think in. It was thinking in Chinese and that I had no no realisation, no uh, consciousness that I was speaking Chinese and that I didn't need to think in English and then translate to Chinese. It just came out in Chinese. And then when I was speaking English, it's the same. It just came out in English. Can you tell me about the grammar of Mandarin? I don't know why, but I'm imagining that it's just really complicated. Chinese is quite simplistic in terms of its grammar and its structure. I think the traditional Chinese that's in the um, the big ancient essays and stuff, that's really difficult. That's a whole other language, as with when you look at some of the old English stuff, that's different as well. We read Shakespeare and you might not actually be able to understand completely what it means. Yeah. Chinese, every character has a meaning and every character has numerous meanings and so two characters when you put them together, a really simplistic one is you put fire and mana together and that means volcano. But then again, there's like emotions and stuff that you put two different emotions and you put them together and it means another different thing. The difficulty with Chinese isn't necessarily its, its grammar. The most complex part of Chinese isn't even the tones, that it's got four tones and a silent tone. Like ma means mum, uh, ma means spicy, ma means horse, ma means scold, and ma makes the sentence a question. <laughs> that sounds really baffling. <laughs> but that's not even the most difficult part. The writing is difficult too. Essentially, you don't have an alphabet. 
you've got lots of different pictures and parts of pictures that are put together to create meaning. Like the word for good, ha, is a female radical and a son. Because you know, back back in the day, I think, you know, when you had a son, it's great. You can go work the fields and that was a good thing. Mm, mm. And so all these different kind of characters have a meaning to them, which is kind of different to English where ABC, right? You, you put it together, but that's more, you read it and you can say it. In Chinese, sometimes you can look at it and you might not necessarily know how to say it, but you might be able to guess what it means. Yeah, wow, wow. But the difficulty is just the concepts that things in Chinese don't perfectly translate to English and that there's certain things that just that aren't easy to translate between the two Mm. languages so you look up something in the dictionary and maybe it's got 12 different meanings so it's only after time that uh, you kind of internalize what the ma- each of these things mean and then kind of how it gets put together I mean obviously you wouldn't um, condone the idea of uh, going through a car accident to learn a language but uh, do you have advice to anyone who really wants to learn Chinese yeah definitely not an accident like it, it <laughs> I nearly died like <laughs> I nearly died uh, it the most important thing with language that I find is that passion for a language helps beyond anything else. Like a deep love for the language is going to make you want to study, want make you want to learn more about it. Also, a non-fear just to make mistakes and just to speak with people. The best speakers of Chinese that I've met over in China that are foreign are not necessarily the smartest people. They're just generally people that just aren't afraid to speak they're not necessarily the best students in class but they just love to speak with Chinese friends and the culture and to chat with people when they see them on the street to chat with the taxi drivers I think less is more is probably always the best thing like particularly with Chinese you've got tones you've got characters so if you don't get the tone right like it means a different thing so there's no point learning a hundred words where the tones you don't know learn 10 of them but learn the tones really really well Mm. and then at least you can have more correct and meaningful conversations. I want to go back to this idea of of fate or destiny. Mm. Uh, Do you believe in it? Yeah, 100%. If it's fate, is it destiny? The Chinese talk about a thing called Yunfe, which is like the fate which brings two people together, generally romantic, but it can also be like the fate which brought me and China or me and the language or me and the people that I've met over in China together. And, like, I think if if I don't believe in it... like, I'm here for a reason. Like, uh, I've no doubt that I've got this purpose, uh, that uh, I'm still alive and that um, the Chinese, that's just one element of it. It's more so the, the greater thing is that I've been kind of directed in this way towards China and I've got this deep and burning passion for the country and the cultures and everything about it. I wouldn't have started Chinese if my dad didn't kind of force me to do it. At the end of school, I wouldn't have gone over to China unless my Chinese teacher told me to do it. Post coming back, you know, from China, I wouldn't have, I might have not pursued Chinese with the same relentless focus if I didn't have the accident. Like I wouldn't necessarily be here today if I didn't go on the Chinese date show. Like I think fate has a huge part towards the direction that you go. If you hadn't gone through a coma, do you think you'd still have your fascination with China? <laughs> probably not. If the accident didn't happen and I didn't wake up from the coma, then I probably might not have. Uh, gone on that Chinese speaking competition then I might not have opened the Chinese tourism company, then I might not have gone on the the exchange to Shanghai, then I might not have watched the show If You Are The One and gone, that's really cool, then I might not have gone on the date show. That was a really, really key point in starting the direction it's like, you know, on a boat if you just change the direction that you're sailing by just a millimetre or so, you can end up in a completely different area 
So, yeah, I think it would be a very different story if I hadn't had the accident. In some ways, are you glad that the accident happened? Uh, I don't think anyone's glad about you know nearly dying and being in a coma for a week, but I'm very thankful and grateful and blessed that I woke up and only really good things came of it. When you tell people in China this story, how's, how's it received there? <laughs> Most people go, oh, I heard about that before. I thought it was fake. <laughs> um, I, I don't generally go about talking about the story um, unless someone asks. Yeah. But a lot of them just say it's kind of like fate. In Chinese, there's there's a couple of different sayings, but you know, one of them is yin huo de fu, which is like because of a calamity, you get blessed. And so a lot of them, I think they see it as fate as well. Uh, they see it that uh, that's kind of your calling. No wonder you're so passionate about China. No one, this is why you're here right now. I think they they see it a lot more fate than the average, say, people from outside of China see it. A lot of people Chinese just see it definitely as fate, like this is a calling and that there's a reason that this happened. Ben, I just want to say a big thanks for coming into the studio and sharing your story with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Like, I'm truly blessed to still be here and to have the life that I currently have. It's really cool. Thanks for listening. For more episodes of Extremes, just go to vice.com or iTunes. This episode of Extremes was hosted by me, Julian Morgans. It was produced by Anu Hasbold, edited, mixed and mastered by Jeff O'Connor. Our series producer is Katie Roberts, and our post-production coordinator is Pia Caridi. On next week's episode of Extremes, we're talking to a convicted arsonist. This is a guy who lit around 50 bushfires throughout his teenage years. And we're going to be asking him why. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.